Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you're about to hear is an audio selection from the writings of W. Cleon Skousen on the real story of Thanksgiving, narrated by his grandson, Adam Skousen. The script for the audio is taken from Dr. Skousen's book, It's Coming to America, The Majesty of God's Law, which can be found online or at your local bookstore. Many people have either forgotten the real story of Thanksgiving or never learned it. Did you know the early settlers practiced communism? It nearly destroyed them with starvation and the death of thousands before they turned to free enterprise, which replaced idleness with industry and scarcity with plenty. This is the reason for celebrating Thanksgiving, the victory of free enterprise over communism. We hope you enjoyed this 30-minute audio on the real story of Thanksgiving. Please consider sharing with your family and friends, especially during this Thanksgiving season. Enjoy! The Real Story of Thanksgiving, The Triumph of Freedom, by W. Cleon Skousen. It was three days before the Sabbath, in the year of our Lord, 1621. In the solemn stillness of the autumn air, religious refugees gathered to give thanks to God. Indians would soon arrive, bringing peaceful contributions to what history would record as the first American Thanksgiving. Oddly enough, however, modern Thanksgiving feasts and pageants fail to relate a complete account of the events leading up to this occasion. The purpose of this writing is to relate the whole story the way it unfolded in the wilderness of the New England frontier. Sometimes we forget that nearly all of the early Europeans who originally came to America were seeking easy riches. Those who came over with jubilant enthusiasm soon learned the terrible reality of seeing thousands dying from starvation, while others were forced to beg for a few handfuls of corn from the Indians. Eventually, the newcomers became reconciled to the threatening dangers of life on the frontier and the price they had to pay to survive. In 1606, the London Company commissioned three ships to establish a permanent settlement in America. They targeted the area between the 34th and the 38th parallels as a suitable location based on the maps from earlier explorers. The ships left England in December 1606 and arrived off the coast of Virginia in April 1607. The Council of the London Company sent some of its leaders along on the voyage as supervisors to protect their business interests. They were given a sealed casket, which was not to be opened until they had located a place of settlement. The secret box contained instructions from London as to the manner in which the settlement should be set up. It also contained the names of the leaders who were to govern the settlement after they arrived in Virginia. Little did they know how appropriately named the casket was. History would show that the organizational instruction within it would lead to the death of more than half of the settlement. For unknown reasons, Captain Christopher Newport did not take the most direct route from England to Virginia, which had been done the year before in a single month. Instead, he followed the same route Columbus took, which nearly doubled the distance and required four months to accomplish. John Smith wasn't happy about it. 
As the most experienced traveler on the captain's flagship, he could not resist expressing his total exasperation that the voyage was not only taking too long, but that the 105 settlers were consuming much of the precious food which had been stored aboard for their first winter in the new land. Smith's criticism of Captain Newport was interpreted by the ship's corporate overseer as mutinous, and Smith was imprisoned in a stifling lockup below deck for the journey. As it turned out, John Smith was no ordinary passenger. The London Company had already secretly selected him to be one of the new colonial leaders. Historians would regard Smith as one of the greatest Englishmen of that generation. But for now, he remained in chains for the long journey. Because John Smith figures so prominently in the story of Virginia, we will briefly highlight his early distinction as a courageous leader and valiant soldier. In his youth, John Smith had an irrepressible craving for adventure and went to France where he served as a soldier. It bothered young Smith that so many Christians were engaged in deadly wars killing each other, so he turned his focus on fighting against the Turks. He joined a company of pilgrims headed for Palestine, where the latest crusade was being waged. However, a terrible storm threatened to destroy the ship and drown the crew. So they threw Smith overboard, thinking that gesture might appease God and save their lives. Fortunately, Smith had always been a good swimmer and made his way to shore. Eventually, he found his way to Syria, where the battle with the Turks was in progress and enlisted in the Holy Roman Army. He was quickly promoted to captain over a company of 250 cavalry. One day, during a heavy siege at the city of Regal, a Turkish captain sent out a challenge to the Christian army for any captain to face him in combat, to the death. Smith was chosen and accepted the challenge. As the two horses charged toward each other, Smith plunged his lance into the Turkish captain, instantly impaling him. He then dismounted, removed the Turk's helmet, and cut off his head. The gruesome trophy was triumphantly presented to the Christian general. The Turks were so outraged that one of the captains shouted a personal challenge to Smith for another round, this time with pistols. Smith's shot hit the Turk and knocked him to the ground. Smith immediately rushed up to him with his sword. A moment later, the Turk had been decapitated. Smith then decided to issue a bold challenge to any Turkish captain who wanted to come out and win back both heads in a final duel. The challenge was accepted. This time, the weapon of choice was the battle axe. With both armies cheering for their own captain, Smith dodged the Turk's charging blow, and then, by quickly turning while withdrawing his sword, he plunged the sharp blade completely through his opponent. A moment later, Smith had his head. The reputation of this daredevil Englishman spread throughout the crusade forces. Smith was granted a special coat of arms showing the decapitated heads of three Turks on a shield. But Smith's good fortune was not to last forever. After a fierce battle in Transylvania, Smith was taken prisoner and sold into slavery. His new master was abusive and severely mistreated him. Following a brutal beating, Smith turned on the Turkish pasha and used his threshing stick to crush the man's skull. He then dressed in the dead man's clothes mounted his horse with a sack of grain, and galloped off into the Scythian desert. 
Reflecting on Smith's maelstrom of dangerous, death-defying adventures, we can better understand his impatience and easily aroused rancor against the badly managed voyage across the South Atlantic. But, as mentioned earlier, Smith's protests landed him in chains to wait out the long journey to the New World. It was April 26, 1607, when Captain Newport brought his three ships into the mouth of the River James. A party of the more adventurous passengers briefly ventured on shore, but they were viciously attacked by Indians. They hurriedly reboarded the ship and proceeded up the river. As they maneuvered up the stream, they saw a site which most of them felt would be satisfactory for a settlement. They named the place Jamestown in honor of the English king. Here, on May 13th, they set up their encampment. For a makeshift church, they nailed a board between two trees to serve as a reading desk and stretched a canvas awning over it. There, Reverend Hunt solemnly read the Episcopal service for the first time in Virginia and then preached the first sermon. That evening, the members of the council opened the secret box and saw for the first time the names of those who would govern the new settlement. To their surprise, one of those names was John Smith. Members of the council who were hostile to Smith refused to let him take his rightful place because of his alleged mutiny during the voyage. Smith demanded a jury trial, and when all the evidence was presented, the jury said he was not guilty. Smith promptly assumed his rightful place on the council. The London Company had agreed to provide the means for the launching of the Virginia colony. However, it was stipulated that no wages would be paid. The company promised that houses would be built for everyone, but stipulated that when the crops were harvested, they would be divided among the settlers equally. Today we would call this scheme voluntary communism. However, it did not take long to discover that human nature does not adapt itself to working voluntarily when it is known that all will share equally in the harvest whether or not they worked. Not only is this arrangement an open invitation for the lazy to engage in malingering, but those who actually do the work feel cheated when they see the lazy settlers getting as much as those who performed the labor. Before long, this voluntary communism became compulsory communism. Less than a month after landing in the New World, the system was already producing anger and unrest among the settlers. Captain Newport prepared to return to England, promising to return with additional supplies and more settlers. He left behind what supplies he could spare and sailed on June 22nd, this time taking the direct route to England. Little did he realize that upon his return that next year, only 38 of the original settlers would be found alive. With Captain Newport gone, along with much of the supplies, it soon became apparent that there was not enough to last more than a short time. Therefore, everyone had to be put on strict rations. On a daily basis, there was only a half pint of wheat and a half pint of barley per person, and no salted meat to go with it. Furthermore, the grain had been stored for 26 weeks in the ship's hold and loud complaints arose when the settlers discovered it contained as many worms as grains. The poor diet, unfamiliar kinds of labor for many of the settlers, and the stifling heat of an American summer began to take its toll. Furthermore, malarial fever broke out, 
and by the end of September, 50 of the settlers had died and been consigned to their graves. All the rest were sick, and if the Indians had chosen to attack, John Smith speculated there would not have been even five men strong enough to man the bulwarks. At this point, John Smith began making overtures to the Indians and developing a friendly dialogue which allowed him to beg sufficient corn from them to keep the survivors alive. But foraging for corn among the Indians had its risks. While John Smith was negotiating with some Indians for corn, he was suddenly taken captive and hauled off before Powhatan, chief of all the tribes in the region. After an extensive consultation, the chief made a decision to place John Smith's head between two stones, and the tribal warriors advanced on him with clubs in hand, ready to beat his head to a pulp. Smith knew that in spite of all his narrow escapes in the past, this crisis undoubtedly marked the end of his life. However, everything changed when the chief's 13-year-old daughter, Pocahontas, threw herself across John Smith and begged for his life. There was a brief moment when time stood still as Powhatan considered the girl's petition. Then the chief ordered John Smith released. Sometime later, Chief Powhatan told Smith he would like to adopt him as a son. In January, Captain Newport returned as promised, bringing the additional supplies and settlers to assure the survival of the settlement but it was never enough as long as the same system that cost the colony most of its first settlers was still in place. Under the denigrating system of communism, whether voluntary or compulsory, the colony could not sustain itself. The leaders could not fathom that the problem was any more complicated than the men simply not working hard enough. John Smith was put in charge and he had to place the whole settlement under martial law to provide enough for even a bare subsistence. About 40 men did the work, while 200 malingered and shirked. Smith finally called them together and declared that any who did not work would not eat. And he said it with a musket in his hand, so they knew he meant it. In 1609, John Smith was arranging to move Jamestown to a more healthy site, when an explosion of gunpowder severely wounded him, and he had to be taken to England for surgery and a gradual recovery. Meanwhile, the imported population of Jamestown had grown to 500, and the London Company felt assured that the colonists would dig in and finally become self-sustaining. However, when the supply ships arrived in May 1610, there were only 60 people left alive out of the 500. Jamestown was a vista of grave mounds in every direction. It was so discouraging that the 60 survivors decided to completely abandon the settlement and return to England. It was not until the forlorn and broken-hearted refugees were already leaving the mouth of the James River that they sighted on the distant horizon the first of three ships that had come to save them. Lord Delaware had brought both food and people. With renewed hope, the survivors returned to the abandoned Jamestown to rebuild it and try once more. But it is impossible to save people from themselves. More people and more supplies continued to pour in from England to rescue the Virginia investment. But starvation, death, and disease continued its toll the rest of the year. By spring, 150 more graves had been dug. Finally, 
By 1611, the London Company realized it had made a terrible mistake by refusing to allow the settlers to have private property and operate on their own initiative. Under the direction of Sir Thomas Dale, communism was abandoned and replaced with a plan that gave each settler three acres of cleared land to cultivate and reap the harvest thereof. Soon, some astonishing things began to happen at the Jamestown settlement. All those who eagerly accepted the new regime began to improve their situation so remarkably that word spread to England that Virginia was going to survive after all. Historian John Fisk writes, Six months after Dale's administration had begun, a fresh supply of settlers raised the whole number to nearly 800, and a good stock of cows, oxen, and goats were added to their resources. The colony now began to expand itself beyond the immediate neighborhood of Jamestown. By 1619, the population of Virginia had grown to around 2,000 and its plantations and villages were scattered up and down the James and York rivers. At this time, the company began inviting boatloads of young women over to Virginia. Prospective husbands were required to pay 120 pounds of tobacco to cover the cost of the voyage from England. In spite of her rugged birth pangs, Virginia finally began to expand and prosper with a quality of life that became the paradigm for all of the other southern states. Yet, despite Jamestown's ultimate victory over the failed formula of communism, others would find the allure of all things common too great a promise to ignore. Now that the London Company had a successful settlement in the Americas, they were approached by a group of pilgrims. These people requested help to settle an area considerably north of Jamestown. From a religious standpoint, the pilgrims were called separatists, which meant they wanted to set up a church completely independent of the Church of England. King James could not believe anyone would want to leave his church. He objected strenuously as though they were committing treason against the crown. Wherever separatists could be found, King James ordered a heavy dose of punishment. It might be imprisonment in rat-infested prisons, the slitting of noses, the cutting off of ears, or the confiscation of property. In some cases, he ordered outright execution. It was this barbaric religious intolerance which drove the pilgrims out of their homeland to Amsterdam, with hopes of attempting an ocean-crossing voyage to Virginia. Good fortune came their way when the famous John Smith offered to be their guide. By this time, Smith was fully recovered from an unfortunate gunpowder accident he had experienced several years prior in Jamestown. He was anxious to return to the New World. No man alive knew more about that barren, rock-bound coast than did he. Smith offered to be the advisor and guide on their journey. But William Brewster, the minister of these religious refugees, rejected Smith's generous offer to go with them. As it turned out, that poor choice ended up being the first of many bad judgment calls that haunted the pilgrims from start to finish in their epic plight for religious freedom. On September 6, 1620, after a number of costly delays, 102 souls crowded aboard the Mayflower and were carried by a stiff breeze out across the billowing ocean toward their destiny. By October, the notorious westerlies pummeled the ship with waves 50 feet high and turned everything below deck into a scene of total pandemonium. 
At one point, the ship was twisted so violently that the huge beam, running from stem to stern, was cracked and threatened to break. Had this occurred, every soul aboard the ship would have drowned. Fortunately, someone had stowed away a huge screw jack from Holland, capable of lifting the corner of a house. There was a mad scramble among the jumbled baggage until it was found. As the screw was turned and the jack moved up under the sagging beam, there was a breathless moment to see if it was strong enough to lift the load. Suddenly, the jack took hold and the mighty beam creaked back into its original position. During the storms, the Mayflower was blown hundreds of miles off course. When land was finally sighted, the captain was amazed to find that he was approaching the snow-covered coast of Cape Cod, which is now part of Massachusetts. Once the group realized they were far beyond the region granted by the charter, there was talk of mutiny. Elder William Brewster took the matter in hand and ordered all the men to meet as a body to hear him read a document on which the authority of the new colony would be established. It was a covenant, in the presence of God, to obey all just and equal laws, which would be drawn up for the general good. Every man signed the document, and the threat of mutiny was thereby averted. This is known in history as the famous Mayflower Compact. Landing parties quickly scrutinized the maps which were given to them by John Smith and found a place he had designated as Providence. After a few minor Indian skirmishes and several other disquieting escapades, the Pilgrim colony was settled. The Pilgrims could tell this area had been an Indian settlement before their arrival. But what they did not know was that the previous occupants had been wiped out three years earlier by a plague. Members of this Plymouth settlement worked feverishly to get houses built. But before they could get out of the weather, a plague of influenza struck down the whole population. The devastation stretched into late fall and through the winter. By spring, 34 men with families had died, and 20 of the 24 mothers had perished. Spring found less than half of the company still alive. A friendly Indian named Squanto joined the pilgrims to help them. It was his tribe that had been wiped out by the plague previously. He taught them how to put two or three herring in each hill of Indian corn as fertilizer. He also assured them that by the middle of April, the nearby brook would contain all the herring they needed for their entire corn planting. John Carver, who had been elected the original governor, never got to see the plentiful herring. He died of a stroke in April, and the young William Bradford was elected to take his place. However, it would not be a pleasant assignment. In spite of the bitter experience which the settlers of Jamestown had endured under communism, the London Company stockholders insisted that the pilgrims practice compulsory communism for seven years and have all things in common. The pilgrims embraced the idea and saw this as an opportunity to build a new Jerusalem. It would serve as a religious sanctuary for the devout, where they could practice communal sharing. They intended to accomplish what the settlers of Jamestown had failed to do by establishing a utopian society, as described in Plato's Republic. As with Jamestown, it was mutually agreed that everyone would work together and share the fruits of their labors with each other in equal shares. This system was predictably inefficient, but there were enough hard workers among them to put together a fairly good harvest by fall, 
Therefore, they decided to celebrate with three days of thanksgiving. Chief Massasoy, who had introduced the settlers to Squanto and made a peace treaty with them, came with 90 of his braves and five deer freshly killed. Bradford sent four men out, and they killed enough turkeys, ducks, and geese to provide food for a week. Even though this first American Thanksgiving was a happy event, the memory of it faded as workers returned to the dull routine of their communal struggle. Each year was more arduous as the pilgrims tried to survive in a self-defeating routine of bare subsistence rations. For many, it was just too much, and in nearly every family there were those who succumbed to disease and the rigors of the hostile climate. Finally, Governor William Bradford recorded, The young men that were able and fit for labor and service did complain that they should spend their time and strength to work for other men's wives and children without recompense. The strong had no more division of food, clothes, etc. than he that was weak and not able to do a quarter the other could. This was thought injustice. The aged and graver men to be ranked and equalized in labor and food, clothes, etc. with the meaner and younger sort, thought it some indignant and disrespect unto them. And for men's wives to be commanded to do service for other men as dressing their meat, washing their clothes, etc., they deemed it a kind of slavery. Neither could many husbands well tolerate it. The less industrious members of the colony were consistently lax in their labors, knowing that they and their families were guaranteed an equal share of whatever harvest the group produced. The harder-working people became resentful at the lackluster efforts of their fellow settlers. Again, the New World settlers found themselves part of a flawed communal system, a failed experiment in communism. The production level under this system was so low that ultimately the colonists faced complete extinction by starvation. Because of the disincentives and resentments that spread among the population, crops were sparse, and while the shares from the collective harvest were equal, they were not enough to ward off starvation and death. Years of practicing collectivism had left alive only a fraction of the original number of the Plymouth colonists. They began to realize that Plato's best ideas simply would not and could not work. With no shipments of supplies or settlers coming from England, another season like the last two would spell certain death for those few remaining. The pilgrim elders came to the same conclusion as the settlers in Jamestown a decade earlier. They too would introduce private property rights and the right of the individuals to keep the fruits of their own labor. After much debate, it was decided every family would be given a parcel of land based on the number in each family. The basic slogan which seemed to emerge from this new arrangement was root, hog, or die. In other words, if you don't do your part, you won't survive. Of course, the sick and the helpless had to have the benefit of Christian charity, but every healthy worker began to see the results of a strong competitive free society where he could enjoy the fruits of his labor. After one year, the governor was able to report. This had a very good success, for it made all hands very industrious, so as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means the governor or any other could use, and saved him a great deal of trouble and gave far better content. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to set corn which before would allege weakness and inability, 
whom to have compelled would have been thought great tyranny and oppression. The following year, the colony experienced a great bounty of harvested crops. Private ownership meant that there was a discernible link between work and reward. Men and women went to the fields with enthusiasm and ambition. When the harvest time came, not only did many families produce enough for their own needs, but they had a surplus to exchange with their neighbors for mutual benefit and improvement. The practice of free trade proved to provide more feelings of brotherhood and community than were ever achieved in the old communal system. In Governor Bradford's words, By this time harvest was come, and instead of famine, now God gave them plenty, and the face of things was changed, to the rejoicing of the hearts of many, for which they blessed God. And the effect of their planting was well seen, for all had, one way or other, pretty well to bring the year about, and some of the abler sort, and more industrious, had to spare, and sell to others. So as any general want or famine hath not been amongst them since, to this day. In the wilderness of the early American New World, both the Jamestown settlers and the Plymouth Pilgrims progressed from the false dream of communism to the sound reality of free enterprise. The experience of these communities became a miniature laboratory in which the later lessons of the entire American economy were mirrored. They helped start a civilization which would not only provide peace and prosperity for themselves, but would become a model for the rest of mankind. Their prosperity came when they returned to the key principles of hard work, frugality, thrift, and compassion, just as God intended. These valuable experiences in America's early history, those mistakes that needlessly cost so many thousands of lives, are the sacred lessons behind the real story of Thanksgiving. <laughs>